Right, evening Flatirons, how are we? Good, good, good. Hey, uh, as we wrap up this series, before we do that, I got a couple special announcements for you. The first one is this. Please don't forget to get your Rockies tickets. We're going next Sunday. We want to see as many of you out there as possible, so make sure you grab those out there. $4 for, uh, for the Rock Pile, $8 for, uh, for the Upper Deck. So make sure you grab those. The second announcement is this. Uh, the following weekend, the 26th and 27th, we're going to be having our, our open house across the street at what we affectionately refer to as the Walbertsons because we will hopefully, Lord willing, be closed on both of those properties by them um, so that you can come over and hang out. So you're invited after whichever service you attend to come tailgate, uh, bring food, all kinds of stuff. We will have uh, some hot dogs for you, but if that's not enough, bring some food of your own. Uh, uh, what we want to do is just kind of give you a little preview of what you're going to see over there. So check out check out this little fly-through deal where you can kind of see what the floor plan will look like. When you get over there, you'll be able to actually walk in and we'll have kind of taped off and some signs and stuff like that that say, you know, children's space will be over here, multi-purpose space over here, cafe, bathrooms, all that kind of really important stuff. So make sure you come out for that. It's going to be a big, big party. I'm sure the cops will... Uh, come and visit. All right. So make sure you do that. Um, also make sure you bring your brick, um, back with you. Those of you who've been participating in this thing called bricks, bring that back. Those things we've been writing names on. Um, we're going to go ahead and collect those, um, and bring your commitment cards. If you just took a brick last week and you're making a commitment to this deal, um, bring those back, uh, to the party as well. It's really been an amazing journey for us. I mean, it's been unbelievable. We've had somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,800 different families commit uh, to give over and above what they normally give to this place so that um, we can go over there and more people can bump into Jesus. We uh, have committed $10.2 million to this thing in some of the worst economic times our country has ever seen. And we've already got somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 million in, which is just amazing. So thanks to you guys who have been participating in that. If you want to participate in that, again, the BRICS stuff is out in the lobby. You can be a part of that. All right. Hey, um, we're going to wrap up this series called cannonball tonight. And what we've been looking at is just kind of trying to remember back to that first time you ever jumped off a high dive or a, or a low dive or jumped into a pool at all. Just remembering what that feeling was like and remembering that it took kind of your whole mind, body and soul, all of you to be engaged in that process. And what we've been comparing it to is that Jesus invited us to live that kind of life. Uh, He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. In other words, an all in, all out cannonball kind of life. And we've been kind of tracking with this guy named Abram. We learned last week his name was changed to Abraham. And we've been learning about him that Abraham had these great moments of obedience where it looked like he was really living out that command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he has these massive failures and screw-ups, which means he's a lot like me and a lot like us, a lot like you, a lot like all of us. And what we've done is we've watched Abraham allow things like fear to creep into his life and cause him to kind of climb back down the ladder. And we watched him literally last week try to play God. And instead of being dependent on God, he tried to act independently of God. And what we learned is that came at a huge price. Um, Not just for him and his family, but for the world that we live in today, even the ramifications we're feeling. And what we learned along the way is that while Abraham has been up and down and very unsteady, we've learned one thing. God has been steady. Um, God's been faithful. God's kept his promises over and over again. And the main promise he's made to Abraham is that he will be a father of a great nation. And that That nation will come from a a son that he's going to have with his wife, Sarah. Now, where we left off in the story last week, we've got kind of this huge roadblock in front of us. And 
especially for them, because when we left off last week, Abraham was approaching 100 years old and his wife Sarah was approaching 90 years old. So things aren't looking too promising for them to be able to have a child at this point in their life. And between where we left off last week and where we're going to pick up this week, there's only about a year in between. And in that year's time, the pattern will continue with Abraham of obedience followed by failure. He'll climb up the ladder and then back down the ladder. And in a year's time, he'll be told again by God that he's going to have a son with his wife, Sarah. And when they're told that, they both laugh about it. They both think it's ludicrous. They both are going, this is insane. Look at us. There's no way that we could ever have a child together. So if you're in there going, come on, Scott, 100-year-old, 90-year-old having a baby together, give me a break. You're not near as skeptical as Abraham and Sarah actually were. So once again, Abraham's kind of struggling in his faith, trying to believe God and believe that he'll do what he promises to do. And once again, Abram makes a mistake that he's made before. Do you remember when he was in Egypt, he told everybody that his wife, Sarah, was his sister? He actually does this again. All these years later, he does this with a king named Abimelech, and Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. Now, here's the thing, all right? Sarah's 90. And yet somehow she keeps attracting the attention of kings. She must have some really great product. All right. She's got, she's got something that's working with that skin. Cause at age 90, she's still a knockout apparently. All right. Or kings are very blind. One or the other. All right. Um, but it doesn't go well. Needless to say, once again, this is old tapes in the head of, of Sarah. And I don't know about you, but I've had many lessons in my life. I've had to learn more than once. Abraham's the same way. But today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in a place that's pretty happy, actually, in Genesis chapter 21. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to live there. Pull out your program. All the scriptures in there, too. We're going to start in this pretty happy place, but then we're going to quickly transition into Genesis 22, which is not a happy place. And for those of you who grew up in church or you've spent some time studying the Bible, you knew the moment that I said we were going to kind of trace the life of Abraham in this, in this series, you knew that we were going to get to this moment. You knew there was no way that we could talk about Abraham without getting to the most famous story of Abraham that there is. And I got to be honest with you, I planned this series, but I haven't been looking forward to this moment. And here's why I haven't been looking forward to it. The story we're going to look at tonight is not just a story that I'm uncomfortable with. There's lots of stories like that in the Bible. I actually really don't like this story. I don't like it at all, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or supposed to say it. I'm saying it because it's true. It's one of those stories that was all well and good when I was a seven-year-old sitting in a Sunday school class, and they had like a felt board in front of me with these little smiley characters. Not so much now, all right? So, but for now, we're going to pick up in a pretty happy place. Look at Genesis 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Stop right there. When it says that the Lord was gracious to Sarah, that literally translates that he visited her. In other words, he's paying attention to her. He's noticing her. We learned a new name for God last week. It's El Roy. It's the God who sees, the God who pays attention, the God who keeps his promise. That's that's who we're talking about. Look at verse 2. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Sarah said, God God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So 
the name Isaac literally means he laughs. In other words, she knew this is going to be really funny. Like as I get bigger and bigger and people look at me, people are just going to laugh. As people see uh, me and Abraham trying to teach this kid how to walk out in the streets, they're going to think this is crazy. As they watch Abraham push a stroller, they're going to go, this is very, very odd. People are going to chuckle when they see this. But this is a good moment. Things are really good. I mean, can you imagine the level of joy? I mean, many of you in this church have struggled with infertility. Some of you have since had children or adopted children, but many of you are in the middle of that struggle right now. And it's painful. Abraham and Sarah went through it. And we don't know how long they were married, but, but we know this. When, when this whole thing began, this whole journey with God began, Abraham was 75 years old and he was already married to Sarah. So on the low end, they struggled with infertility for at least 25 years. In reality, they probably wrestled with this thing for 50 years, maybe even 75 years of infertility. Can you imagine the pain? And can you imagine the joy that was followed by it when they, when they had this boy? The relief, the excitement, the tears they shed. I mean, first time parents are goofy enough as it is right? They clean everything. They read lots of articles and books and stuff. Some of you are first time parents. You're like, Hey, you know, you're goofy. I hate to break it to you. All right. Uh, They just obsess about everything. Can you imagine how this was for Abraham and Sarah? Man, unbelievable. But if you remember back to last week, there's a problem because there's another boy living in the house named Ishmael and another woman in the house. And now it's a very crowded house and things do not go well. And so Sarah demands that Ishmael and Hagar be kicked out of the house. And this stresses Abraham out. Look at verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's a really important verse. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's through Isaac that this whole promise I gave you in the first place will come to fruition. It's through Isaac that you're going to be the father of a great nation. God has said this over and over and over again. Now, we're going to fast forward to chapter 22. And we aren't sure how long there is between chapter 21 and chapter 22. Most commentators estimate somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 years. So picture it. Abraham and Isaac, Sarah and Isaac for 20 years. Years of bonding, of teaching, of learning, of laughing, of discipline, of fun, of play, all that kind of stuff that goes along with raising kids. And Isaac is the focus of his father and mother's affections. He's their boy. He's their son. He's their treasure. He's their prize. And I bet somehow the years of pain and dysfunction between Abraham and Sarah were somehow healed in some way through, through Isaac. God's kept his promise. He's been good. He's been faithful. There's no question that this is a miracle. I mean, I'm sure their plan at this point in life is simply to grow much older, watch Isaac grow up, marry, have children, and die very, very happy. That's their plan. And then chapter 22 rolls in like a dark cloud on a sunny day. Look at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now we, as the readers, get the privilege of knowing ahead of time that this is a test. That word test literally means to to prove. It carries with it the idea of being refined in fire. So it's like gold being put to the fire and the dross and impurities are melted away and what's left is pure gold. This is Abraham's faith being refined in the fire. 
This is kind of this moment of finding out, does Abraham love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength? See, we have the benefit of knowing on the front end that this is a test, which means that God never has any intention of allowing Abraham to actually go through with it. But Abraham doesn't have the benefit of knowing that. He doesn't know it at all. See, this is why I'm saying I don't like this story. Let me clear that up. I don't like this story on many levels. Right? I don't like this story, number one, as a dad. As a dad. In other words, this was once kind of an interesting story before I had kids. Now as I read this story and I actually think about it without just skimming over it like we often do with the Bible, I come away with this story, from the story going, this is awful. Awful. I have, I have two sons and I can tell you emphatically, test or no test, give me an F. I fail. I'm not, no. How about, how about this, God? No. That's, that's my answer, all right? See, this is what I'm talking about. Um, I had, a, I had a, a Bible college professor way back in the day. He was an Old Testament history professor, and he was crazy. But by crazy, here's what I mean, all right? First day of class when you're freshman, he would give this big, long, like 45-minute sermon on, on why he loved the Old Testament. And then at the end of it, he would, he would close his Bible, and he would go, go, go like this. He would go, and tomorrow I'll tell you how I once killed a man. And he just turns around and walks out of the room. We're all going, what? What did he just say? That's the level of crazy I'm talking about. And that kind of stuff continued all throughout school. One time, much later, at a much more difficult class, he walked into a final exam with about 100 of us. There's 100 of us in the room, and he walks in. He goes, all right, everybody, here's the deal. Um, I'm guessing only about four or five of you can come even close to passing this, this test. So don't anybody ask me for any extra time. You have four hours for the final exam. I will not give any extensions. When you're done, you're done. So have a nice time. And he sits down at the desk. Now, when he says like on your market set go or whatever they say when you start a test, I, I have three things that I'm kind of processing through at this point. Number one, I am not one of those four or five people. All right. I know this as a fact. Number two, my buddies are all downstairs playing basketball. Number three, I would much rather be playing basketball than taking a test that I've already been told I'm going to fail to begin with. So I took 10 minutes, scratched out just a few things, folded up the blue book, walked up to the professor, set it, and everybody's looking at me like I was crazy, set it down and go, have a nice night. I'm going to go play basketball. I'm out. That's what I'm talking about. Give me an F. Give me an F. I don't want to pass this class. I've got no desire to because I'm a dad. I'm a dad and this is a no brainer for me. It'd be like this. God, kill me. But I'm not killing my son. It's not going to happen. So it offends me as a dad. It also really ticks me off as a Christian, to be honest with you. How could the God I worship do this? How could he command such a thing? How, how could he command this to Abraham? I mean, hasn't Abraham been through enough in his life? I mean, this really kind of paints the picture of God being this big, mean bully with like a magnifying glass burning ants on an anthill and Abraham's the ant. I mean, why would, it, why would he do this? Because here's the thing. I, I want to be really clear about this, uh, unless you, in, in case you can't tell already. I'm not at all interested in making this story easier to digest for you tonight. I'm not at all interested in making this story any less offensive to you than it was to me when I was reading through it in my office on Monday morning. Let me be clear. He's telling Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. 
Let me explain what that means. What they would do with animals when they sacrificed them as burnt offerings is they would cut their throats from ear to ear, then they would drain all the blood out, and then they would carve them up into pieces, put them on an altar, and set them on fire. That's what God is commanding Abraham to do to his son. This is crazy. This is nuts. And i got to be honest, it seems, seems really out of God's character to me. I mean, the people in Abraham's area, especially in Canaan, were known for child sacrifice. They would literally sacrifice their children by throwing them into fire as an offering to their false gods. And here's the thing. Repeatedly, later on in Scripture, God will set himself apart from this kind of worship by saying things like, that kind of worship I never commanded, nor did it ever enter my mind. So, so what's the deal? What's the deal with this test? Why on earth is God doing this? What's the point of this whole exercise? And I'm sure Abraham wrestled with all those questions and many more that night. The interesting thing is the Bible doesn't give us anything to go on in regards to Abraham's emotional response to this command from God. And I think it's because we all know what it must have been. That night must have been awful. And that night begins a series of three pictures that I think we're supposed to see in this story. Here is God. He's left everything for this God. This God who's been faithful. This God who's made promises. This God who specifically said it's through Isaac that this promise is going to come to fruition. And now now God's saying, kill this boy. How's it possible for him to tell him to do this and remain true to his promises? In other words, his circumstances don't add up to what he believes to be true about God. You ever been there? We talk about this all the time. And I'm sure Abraham would have liked to just pretend that he didn't hear God say it or that God wasn't the one who said it. But he's pretty familiar with God's voice at this point in his life because God has established this supernatural line of communication with Abram. So now once again, he's left with a choice. Climb up the ladder or climb back down. It had to be a grueling, sleepless night of agony and pain and suffering for him. That night for Abraham reminds me of another night for another person about a thousand years later. It went like this. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. It was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. So here's picture number one. I think this was Abraham's Gethsemane. This was his dark night of the soul, as some have called it. Have you ever had one of those? Or 12 of those? A place of such severe anguish and pain that you don't see any way you could possibly survive it? This is that moment for Abraham, no doubt. It had to be. I mean, I can't fathom it. I got to be honest. I'm, I'm reading this story on Monday in my office and I'm just crying because I don't have a category for this as a dad. It's not possible for me to go there in my mind without being absolutely horrified. It had to be a long night. And then the morning came. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him. See, at this point, and I'm, now I'm just walking you through my emotional response to the story. Uh, now I'm mad at Abraham. 
It's like, Abraham, what the heck are you doing? How in the world are you going to explain this to your wife? Your marriage has not been good in case you haven't noticed. I don't think it's going to survive this when you come home empty-handed without her only son. You failed every test along the way, Abraham. Don't you think God will continue to be gracious and merciful if you fail this test? Why all of a sudden are you deciding to be obedient now? You've screwed up at every turn. Why here when the stakes are so high... Are you getting all courageous and brave? Or let's just call it what it is. Stupid. Why? why? Are you kidding me? I don't know. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you know that you're forgiven? You know God is gracious. You know he'll forgive you again. But you're just sick of screwing up. You're just sick of failing. You're sick of being disobedient. Ever get to a place in your life where you just want the pattern of your life to change? You're sick of climbing down the ladder? I think that's exactly where Abraham is. I think that's a little bit of what's going on. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you notice that? We will worship and then we will come back to you. See, this gives us a clue as to what Abraham is banking on. This tells us that he is confident of this. God has made a promise and that promise is is Isaac and God keeps his promises. And this is Abraham going, I'm not sure why God's telling me to do this. I'm not sure how he's going to keep his promise. But Isaac is proof. He's walking, talking proof that God keeps his promises. And Abraham believes that. It's called faith, and now he's acting on that faith. It's pretty amazing. Later on in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, the author gives us a window into what it was that Abraham was thinking in this moment. Look at this in Hebrews 11, 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham's going, all right, God can raise him from the dead. And that's an amazing level of faith because there was no precedent in human history as far as we know based on the Bible that anyone had ever been raised from the dead. The few times it's happened all happened after Abraham's life. That's a significant level of faith. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. See, this is the next snapshot that I think we're supposed to notice as Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain. I think it's supposed to remind us of this. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. John nineteen seventeen. Jesus carried probably the cross beam of his cross which probably weighed in the neighborhood of 150 pounds and he did all this after being flogged and beaten and tortured and no sleep and he carried it as far as he could probably falling several times with the weight of it landing on his flayed and exposed back and crushing his lungs and his chest underneath of him until someone else finally had to carry it for him the rest of the way see this scene of isaac carrying the wood is a foreshadowing of jesus one day carrying the cross And there's even more foreshadowing in this story. When Isaac 
asks about the sacrifice and Abraham responds, number one, God will provide. Number two, he's going to provide a lamb. See, I don't, I don't think this is Abraham just trying to reassure his son who's now trying to figure things out. I think this is Abraham exemplifying faith in God. That God's going to provide. God has always provided. God's always done what he's promised. He's always been more than enough. He's always been El Shaddai, as we learned last week, the sustainer, the all-competent and capable one. He's more than capable. He's telling Isaac, he's more than capable of figuring this out. He'll provide. And when he says he'll provide the lamb, I think once again, we're supposed to think of someone else. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. John one twenty nine. See, this picture of Abraham and Isaac walking up this mountain together is a foreshadowing of Jesus walking to his death, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And I'm well past the point of being able to understand Abraham now. He's at a place in the journey, on a journey that I never would have started to begin with. I have no idea what's going through his mind and his heart right now. It's a level of faith I don't know about. I don't know if he's shaking the whole time. I'm not sure what's going on in his mind and his heart. I don't know how a hundred-year-old man is restraining a twenty-year-old man. I don't know if Isaac is much like Jesus saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done, and is a willing participant in this. I don't know how to speculate what this moment was like because this is so otherworldly and unthinkable to me. I just can't get there. All I can say is it must have been horrible. And all I can say is this is the ultimate moment. This is where we've been leading up to this entire series. This is Abraham after a long history of climbing up the ladder and back down. Climbing up the ladder, getting out on the edge and looking over and then backing out. This is Abraham finally trusting, finally loving God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind and with all his strength. There's no other way you get to a moment in your life like this other than going all in. Abraham's finally jumped. And what happens? What happens when you finally let go? What happens when you finally surrender? What happens when you finally fully trust God? What happens? Do we find out if God's trustworthy or not? Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only Son. That word fear means literally to acknowledge good intentions. And that's what we see Abraham doing. He's having faith all along the way of this journey. I have no idea why God's telling me to do this. It doesn't make sense, but I've learned that God always keeps his promises. He's faithful. God has good intentions and I'm not sure how and I'm not sure why, but I'm going to trust. I'm going to go all in. I'm going to obey because of what I believe to be true about God. That's where Abraham's at. It's a place I know not of. See that phrase, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. That sounds strikingly familiar to me too. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. John three sixteen. See for Abraham, 
as this realization that God has once again kept his promise. This is literally a picture of resurrection. That's the third picture. This is his son being returned to him. For three days, he's been as good as dead. For three days, Abraham's thought, I've got no future. I've got no relationship left. I'm going to be disconnected for three days. Isn't it it interesting that it was a three-day journey? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Luke 24, 7. But back to Abraham for a moment. Look, Look at verse 13. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Once again, we're introduced to a new name for God here. It's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What will be provided? A substitute. Something or someone will be sacrificed in someone else's place. See, the point of this whole story is that God has provided a substitute. Someone to take our place. It's exactly what he did with Jesus. Jesus is our substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, I've spent most of my life as a parent being disturbed by this story that God would command Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And I haven't spent near enough time in my life being disturbed by the fact that God did sacrifice his only son. He did it. In fact, I would go so far as to say this story is in the Bible to offend us. That's why it's there. It's there to disturb us, to provoke us. It's supposed to make us throw up our hands and say, we have no category for a father who would sacrifice his only son. That doesn't make sense for a reason. It's not supposed to fit comfortably into our hearts. It's supposed to rock me to my core. And if it does, how much more should the story of Jesus being sacrificed rock me to my core? The story of Christ should cause you and me many sleepless nights. And yet I have this terrible ability to go throughout not just the day, but many days without ever thinking about the cross of Jesus. Without ever thinking about what God provided for me when he gave his only son. I mean, if I'll sit in my office and cry when I think of Abraham potentially losing his son, knowing that he doesn't, why do I not fall on my face when I think about the fact that God gave us his one and only son so that we don't have to perish but can have eternal life? See, it's really interesting, this journey we've been on. We started this thing by exploring what it would look like for you and me to go all in. What would it look like for you and me to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength? But it's an interesting journey because what I'm learning ultimately is what it looks like when God goes all in for me and you and us. See, the point of this story is not that you and I should work really hard to have faith like Abraham. The point of this story is that God is faithful. That's the point. God is strong. God keeps his promises. And because of that, we can have faith. We can have faith in the God who provides. See, there's absolutely no way for you and me to have a relationship with God based on our own goodness. We're not good enough. Playing the game of trying to be good enough is a losing game from the start. The only way for you and me to ever be good enough for God would be for him to provide someone else's goodness on our behalf, which fortunately is exactly what he did in the form of his son, Jesus. So that we could know 
His name. Or should I say so that we could know His names. Names like El Roy. The God who sees. The God who sees you. The God who cares about you. The God who notices you. The one who knows all about you. Your sin, your shame, your faults, your failures. And still longs to be in a relationship with you. So much so that He would send His only Son to die for you. So that you could know El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who's capable, the God who's faithful, the God who will sustain you through all of life's circumstances. So that you can know Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, the God who gave his only son for you, the one who provides a way and his name is Jesus, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He provides his son for you. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I've got two sons, and I wouldn't give up either one of them on, on their worst day for you on your best day. That's, that's not, even a, it's not even a thought for me. I don't love you that much. Not even close. If the only way for me to have a relationship with some of you were to substitute one of my boys for you, not going to happen. Are you disturbed by this story today? Good. Be more offended by the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't have a category for Abraham being willing to sacrifice his only son, then please don't neatly compartmentalize the fact that God gave his only son. Don't just allow that to escape us tonight. See, I have a, I have a really awful prayer for us tonight, all right? It goes like this. I pray that many of us lose sleep tonight. I pray that many of us can't get past the fact that God would do this for us. I pray that many of us would lay awake tonight, offended by His grace, disturbed by His love, wrecked by His mercy, and overwhelmed by His faithfulness. See, I know it's, it's really easy sometimes to walk in here and, and, and as soon as the last couple songs start to play, to go out and grab our kids or get out of here so we can get to dinner fast or whatever. But my challenge tonight would be this. Could, could we just stay here in this place of being offended for a while? And could we really dwell on what God did when he sent his only son for us? We're going to have the opportunity to take communion in a moment. That tray is going to be passed and... There's a little piece of bread and that's supposed to give us a moment to reflect on his body that was broken for you and me as a substitute for us. And that juice is going to be passed and that's a moment to remember his blood that was poured out so that we didn't have to pay that price. You may be in here going, well, this is the part I'm not supposed to participate in. Well, I don't know what your baggage is or your religious background or whatever, but I just have a question. Do you believe that God is who he says he is and will do everything he's ever promised to do? And do you believe that the best way that's ever been demonstrated was through the fact that he sent his only son to die for you on the cross? And, and do you believe that what Jesus did on that cross counts for you as the only way that you could ever have a relationship with God? If, if all that's going on in your heart, that's called faith. And if that's going on in your heart, then take the communion. Take the bread and take the juice. See, here's the thing. I think a lot of us, we've been learning through this series that we've been driven by fear and insecurities and shame and failure and a million other things. And what we're learning is, is that as we go through life up and down, much like Abraham, God is faithful. God is strong. And he desires to know us by name so that we can know him by name. Let's pray. God.
we really do want to know you. And sometimes, God, when, when we catch glimpses of you, like in this story we looked at tonight, we, honestly, we don't like what we see. You're very challenging. <laughs> You're very troubling. You're really big. And it's hard for us to get our minds and our hearts around you. And God, um, some of us feel very cheated by you sometimes. We feel like you didn't come through for us. God, many of us, we still have questions of what in the world you're doing in our life right now, if you're even there. God, my prayer tonight would be this. Would you overwhelm us with your grace? Would you make clear how much you love us? And would you direct our thoughts to the best demonstration of that ever, which is your son Jesus who died on a cross for us? God, would you speak to us in ways tonight that, that only you could, through your word, through your son Jesus. It's in his beautiful name. Amen.